0: well as most all of you know, um, we are here uh, beginning a series of messages on church membership. Uh, Just because at Rock Valley Bible Church we are in the process of uh, working towards implementing a formalized church membership. Um, Until this point in time Rock Valley Bible Church has has practiced uh, informal church membership, where, where people have uh, really just come to church and have stayed around and have become, quote-unquote, members um, through a very informal process. Um, I, I like to compare it with uh, acquaintances who have become friends. You just think about people who are your friends now. What sort of process was that? Um, You didn't take a class, you didn't really think about it very much, but what happened was you you met someone and you liked that person and and they they liked you and you began to spend time with them and you spent more time with them and and eventually became friends and with more time you became good friends without really thinking about it or without much really talking about it. Um, All you know is you like your friend's company and, and that you seek that out. And that's a lot of ways what has happened um, at Rock Valley Bible Church in our membership process. A a typical experience is that a family comes to church, welcomed by those at church, and after a few weeks of visiting, they they like what they see, they they like what they hear, they uh, appreciate what's being done, and and then at that point, oftentimes I initiate a conversation, it's a phone call or a or a visit, um, made them have, sometimes have them over to my house for dinner or, or dessert, and I, I have an opportunity to talk to the new family about what, what our church is about, um, share a little about ways in which they can be involved. Uh, I place them on the email list, um, they get the weekly word, they start seeing what's happening at church. They, they hang around and then eventually become part of the directory, and they become part of the church, right? Very organic. Um, doesn 't quite happen the same way for everybody, but you know people are are in and around, and they are informally members. Well, with formal church membership what we 're seeking to do really is to formalize the relationship it 's sort of like a boyfriend and a girlfriend having that DTR You know what the DTR discussion is who knows what DTR is what is it, Tina? define the relationship, right? Sometimes it's that awkward conversation where a boyfriend or girlfriend, well, are you? What? How are things? And and uh, that's what we're really seeking to do at Rock Valley Bible Church. Put some definition to the relationship of what it means to be a, a church member. How's the church work? What does the church believe? What, 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 what can we expect of you? What can you expect of us? What can you expect from the leaders of the church? Uh, just to formalize things. And um, that's really what we're, what we're seeking to do. We're seeking to find what it means to be a part of Rock Valley Bible Church and what it means to be a member, and whether that's something that, that suits you or to be a member or not. And uh, the question can easily come, well, why are you doing this, right? You, you started the church over 20 years ago, and so why, why now? Has it been that you have, what you've done is wrong and that now you're going a, a biblical way? Um, no, I would not say that's the case. Um, in fact, my, my message this morning is entitled Church Membership in History. And, and one of the things I want to show you is that throughout history, church membership has been practiced in many, many different ways. Um, I, I would say the Bar- Bible speaks about church membership, but it's silent in terms of actually how to, how to practice that. So I, I think that an informal membership is entirely biblical I think a former membership is. I think there's a lot of ways in which you can do it. You know, it's a little bit like baptism. Nobody tells you that you have to do it in a bathtub in a church. You can do it in a lake, you can do it in a river. It doesn't matter what you say exactly how you do it. The Lord's Supper, similarly. The Bible gives us no time frame of, of when how often the, the Lord's Supper should be, um, what should be done beforehand or, or how or how exactly that is. And I think with church membership, uh, there's lots of different ways. And, and my argument this morning as we look at church membership in history is I wanted to just show you just the, the many, many different ways that church membership has been practiced in, in history. And uh, um, there were times in history where members of the church came very quickly after faith. They believed, and boom, they're right in the church. And there are other times where they, they believed, but then there was this long testing period, rigorous requirements before they'd become a, a church member, extensive seasons of teaching and examinations before people became members of churches. Other times in history, very little demand on a church member. And, and, and today, like, like church membership today is all across the board. Some, some thinks church membership is mandatory, necessary. <clears throat> Some say it's totally optional. If it works for you, that's good. If it doesn't work for you, that that's fine. And there's just never in uh, history been a uh, an agreement as to how churches should practice church membership. Even among Bible believers, there's been lots of variants of how that should be done. And I would say my point is this, that, that our practice of what we're doing now um, is not unique history. It's not like we're the only one who's done informal membership before. There's been many others who have done that. We just think that there's a better way forward for us in the future and over the next few weeks I trust that you'll see that. Well this morning we're going to talk about church membership in history and I think a lot of this material will be new to many of you like kind of getting a grasp of, of church history and how, how since the days of Jesus until now, just in the biggest swaths, church membership has been practiced. My, my message today is not going to be so much in the Bible. It's more of a history lesson. But I, I think that's important for us to, to ground to understand that what we've been doing has not been wrong, but we're just choosing to do things in a more formalized way. Well, let's open our Bibles, though, to Acts chapter 2, because here we see the initiation, the beginning of the church. So we begin our, our, our church history lesson here this morning with when the church began. It began really at Pentecost, um, the, the day in, in, in which um, the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews in Jerusalem, and they began to speak in tongues, which means they, they spoke these languages that they didn't know, but other people knew. And um, it was a day in which uh, Jewish people from all over the world came to Jerusalem to, to worship, and as these tongues were spoken, people were, were confused. They said, what's happening? These people, it's, they're drunk. Look, at they're, they're just babbling. And, but they heard them in their own language. And so Peter, amidst all this confusion, stood up in that famous sermon, the Sermon on Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, verse 14. He, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them saying, Men of Judea and you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And he goes on to explain how these people aren't drunk. It's only only like 9 o'clock in the morning they're not drunk. says, But this was what was fulfilled from the prophet Joel. And then he went on, right there in verse 22, he went right to the gospel. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And, and, and there's really the gospel message in some regards. is it that, that Jesus came among you and, and, and he was with you but you crucified him but he was raised from the dead and it was important because that was the fulfillment of acts chapter 16 is is that that god had promised to david that he would not abandon his holy one to the grave and jesus was the holy one he was not abandoned to the grave instead he was raised from the dead and then, as a result of that, it's the Holy Spirit then that was, was poured out. And that's why they're, they're speaking in tongues like this. And it comes to the conclusion of verse 36 about Jesus. you got to deal with him because he's, he's the Lord of Lords. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus whom you killed is Lord and Christ. And they heard this, they were caught to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter gives them the clear command. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And many of them were heard the word, embraced that message. They believed in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day 3,000 souls. And we see here what I'm calling rapid membership. One sermon added to the church 3,000 people. Boom. So think about church membership. And think about how this worked. They didn't have an eight-week class on how to become a church member at this point. They just believed in Jesus and were brought into the church. There wasn't really any formal recognition uh, at some time. It was merely that there were so many coming, 3,000 in one day, that they just, all these people. Right? They didn't even know necessarily how to, how to deal with that. They weren't, weren't planning for that. Little established in the church was by way of formal structure. The leaders were only the 11 apostles, or the 12 that they added, right? The, the 12 apostles that they had. And all of a sudden, 3,000 people. And it's really impossible to have any sort of membership program developed with people rapidly coming into the church. And and, and then that was compounded by, if you look at verse 47, he says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. In other words, every day there are more and more people who are believing and coming into the church. Every day, more and more and more and more. Just kind of overwhelmed and, and flooded they were. They didn't have processes in place. And by the time you get to chapter 4 and verse 4, just over a couple of verses, we see many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So you had 5,000 people all of a sudden. You just had 12 apostles trying to, trying to deal with this all. There, there, was, there was no way that they could handle all this in terms of a, a formalized membership um, structure in place. And you trace things through the history of the church. You see how the then, after the people, then the leadership of the church were often developed in Acts chapter 6. You see the, these men, these seven men appointed to choose to serve the tables of the widows who were being neglected in the daily servings of food. These like, served like deacons as the, the church leadership developed. Uh, it's interesting in, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, as you work through Acts, we think about church and church membership. It's really interesting there. It said that... Uh, the, the, Paul and Barnabas had, had gone into these cities, and it said, um, Acts chapter 14, verse 33. they go gone to Lystra, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then on the way back, after I have established these churches, it says this When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, what you see in the Bible oftentimes is, is people in these churches planted, and then even leadership structure coming in next. Uh, Not even thinking about a church membership structure. In Acts chapter 15, we see the first major conflict in the church. It's in Jerusalem. It's concerning the requirements to be placed upon those who believe. And the major question was this. Do you believe that you need to be circumcised to be saved? Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so the early church had to battle with this. What, 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 what's, what do you need to do to be saved? Do you need circumcised or not? And John Levac pointed out in a sermon that I read, he says, The first considerable dispute within the ranks of the church was concerned with this very issue of church membership. Who's inside the church and who is outside? It's very interesting because that's really what church membership is. It's like, like talking about who, who's inside the church and who's outside the church. What, what what was it required to be in the church right and here we see was it circumcision that requires you to get in and basically said no it's by by grace through faith in jesus christ and that's what brings you into the church and really that's what we're seeking to do a formal church membership it's just making it clear who's inside the church and who's outside the church comes through testimony faith in jesus well, as the, the gospel, as the church developed over the next few decades, right? we start getting outside of, of church history, of, of biblical history here, is what happened was that there was still more rapid growth. What, what began in Acts just continued for the next 40 years. Um, the gospel spread throughout all Asia Minor. As far as Rome, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And all around, churches experienced this rapid growth. And it's the gospel spread. These people would hear the gospel. They'd believe in Jesus. They gathered together the church for worship and for edification. And the New Testament identifies dozens of these churches. You can just think about them Rome, Colossae, Ephesus, Sardis, Smyrna, Thessalonica. I mean, just all these places that are biblical names. These are just a dozen or so of the thousands of churches that developed in about 40 years as these people just rapidly came into the church. And Paul calls those in the churches, he calls them members. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And and he speaks there in in 1 Corinthians 12 about God has appointed people in the church with different giftedness, like, like, like we have with the body, and you're all members of one another. But as much as that is clear, one of the things that is, is not clear is that the Bible gives no details about how they became, joined these churches, how they became members. The New Testament has no indication of new, test, new members' classes or covenants or, or voting of new church members in. They simply united themselves with other believers, were members of one another, and the reason for that is because the rapid membership was there, and the reason is because the church was new right they didn 't have all these formalized structures in place, organizational structures developed over time, like even we see people gathering right and then we see leadership even after that, like coming in to shepherd these churches and I, My contention is new testament doesn 't outline a clear process of how. Church membership should be practiced, other than that they, they're they together. They're gathering, worship, edification, and they're there together. In the, in the apostolic church, we see rapid membership. Well, as we go out of the Bible, and, and now we're going to spend quite a bit of time just thinking about church history, which it's interesting. I, I passed out many surveys to many of you. Thank you for filling those out is that one of the areas in which I looked over them this week is that there's not not a lot of knowledge about church history. A lot of you know a lot about the Bible that's good, but church history, you don't know quite as much. So I think this is going to be helpful for you to kind of get a perspective about biblical times, about what what's happened in the church uh, until today. And, and one of the things we see after the apostles, what I'm calling the post-apostolic church from A.D. 70 to 313 A.D., um, Anyone know what happened in A.D. 70? Yes, Heidi. The temple, the temple was destroyed. What about 313? Or 311? Or 325? Council of Nicaea was 325. Uh, 313, uh, maybe that should, should have been 311. Anyone know what happened in, in these times? There were a couple of them. 311, 313. The Edict of Toleration. Christians officially were to be tolerated in the nation, no longer persecuted. So this was a time of intense persecution. And uh, during this time of intense persecution, we see a large gap of time between faith in Christ and membership of the church because the times demanded it, actually. Uh, People were not accepted rapidly into the membership of the church on the basis of the faith that has been done. We saw in the Bible and the church is kind of growing up. Because of this dynamic of the persecution, it, it's, it, it's really because, uh, it really kind of two, two things happened in this time. One is that uh, people started having some time to really think about church structures. Um, rather before you got thousands of people kind of coming in, it was like overwhelmed. But now some time has passed and began to think about church structures like leadership and, and membership. But the other factor really was this persecution that the church experienced at that time. In fact, during this time was one of the greatest times of persecution the church has ever known. And in the church, as result of that, you think about what happens in time of persecution. There's a lot of pressure put on people who identify with Jesus. And there were many professing believers who came into the church, but then when the persecution came, they fell away. And so the experiences of many churches were, yeah, they grew up, and then when the persecution came, numbers would dwindle, and you had people who used to be members and no longer are. They denied Jesus. And, and the church said, wait a minute, this is wrong. We can't bring people into the church who are only going to deny Jesus later. We need to do everything that we can do to make sure that those coming into the church are believers, they're strong believers, are going to stand the test of the persecution that comes. And and when they faced beatings and imprisonment and death and they denied the faith, there were some of these who wanted to come back because they realized they were wrong. They shouldn't have denied Christ. A little like Peter, right? Peter came back, and there were many Peters in the early church. I mean, you just think about it, you're, you're you're facing some difficult times. A lot of Christians have wavered in times of difficulty, wanting to come back. A lot of have wavered and left the faith, but a lot have been sorrowful, sorrowful over what had happened. And this was a huge issue in the church. So there's even a name given to these people who were in the church, part of the church, who'd gone out and denied Jesus in some ways, and then wanted to come back. They were called penitents official name they were called penitents and they were not received back into the church quickly like they had failed jesus before they had failed before and not being brought back a little bit like mark you remember john mark went with uh, paul and barnabas on the very first missionary journey and he deserted them in acts 13 you can read about that and in acts 15 barnabas wanted to take mark along and paul said no he's got to have some time to prove himself and so he didn 't take him that time there was a rift between Paul and Barnabas, and they, they rifted. but later, after Mark had proved himself, Paul wrote i think it 's in Second Timothy about how, maybe it 's in Colossians about how Mark was useful to him, and so it 's kind of like the same idea that they 'd failed the church they 'd failed people, but they they failed Jesus, but they 'd kind of come back in. And the apostolic church then developed this healthy screening process before membership, so that that wouldn't happen. And, and uh, another another title, not only just the penitents; these who were out and were trying to come back in. Sometimes it was years before they were accepted back into the membership of the church. Um, but there's also another word that came; it's called catechumens. These were people who who expressed faith in Christ, wanted to come into the church, but had to take this time of of teaching. They had to be taught. We teach today catechisms. That's catechumens. These are people who need to be taught. They need to be catechized. And Philip Schaff, great historian, says this regarding these catechumens. He says, They were regarded not as unbelievers, but as half Christians, and were accordingly allowed to attend all the exercises of worship except the celebration of the sacraments. In other words, right, they weren't quite seen as members yet, <clears throat> kind of halfway there. They need to learn and establish themselves. They need to be examined. And these catechumens were were carefully examined over a long period of time before they were baptized and before they were brought into membership of the church. And that's in contrast to the New Testament where you see the Ethiopian eunuch wanting to be baptized right away. Yes, he's baptized right away. Cornelius and his house and his family, upon believing, they're baptized right away, but not permitted in the post-apostolic era. In fact, as one man, Peter Toon said, "A very thorough preparation for entrance into the privileges of church membership took place and you say, Well, why is that? you got to understand it's persecution, and again, Schaff says that this was this lengthy preparation, this lengthy time was a bulwark of the church against unworthy members. And the entire membership process was not easy. I mean, we would see it today and kind of like scratch our heads like why?" Why would they take so long to be a member? Why would they teach people so much before they'd become a member? It's because the times of persecution really demanded it. It was the, the culture of the day to, to really, as the, the, uh, the church pushed upon people, just the, the necessity to weigh the decision of following Christ, to think through what this will mean for your friends and your family and your job and your, your, your uh, dealing in the society. Are you really ready to, to deny all these things and to face this suffering and face this hardship. Just, that's, that's the reason for the long time. It also allowed the leaders to discern the character and genuineness of those who are wishing to, to join the church. Are they demonstrating that they have this fortitude and this passion and this uh, ability to persevere over persecution? Now, we have several early church history documents about... Uh, the curriculum that was taught. One of these is called the Didache. I'm not sure if you have ever heard of that before. Written about 100 AD. Um, it's about the length of um, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And, and it just speaks about just the instructions for holy living, um, what Christian morality looks like. And only after going through that document were, were, were members then, were believers presented for baptism. Another example is called the Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus. About twice as long as the Didache about 100 years later. So this comes about 200 AD. And, and here it requires a three-year instruction period for catechumens to come into the church. So you say, okay, I want to be a member of the church. All right, let's go through this curriculum three years, and we'll see if you are worthy and really understand. And because so it's, it's the persecution that that really guarded the door of entrance into membership because they wanted people to be tested. As far as they could tell, they wanted to ensure that, that people weren't going to go out and fail and, and fall and crumble under persecution. Because the times of persecution really required it. However, it's interesting then as, as Christianity prevailed and as more and more people were coming into the church, there was a there was a transition that took place from rigorous membership to what I call relaxed membership when the requirements for church membership were made a lot easier, and this was you know right after the after three hundred and twenty five the Council of Nicaea Christianity has proved legal it took some or declared to be legal and then what happened was it, it it just continued to go, and pretty soon Christianity became the dominant religion and and thanks in large measure to this man who is Constantine the Great uh, he lived born in two hundred seventy two a d died in three hundred and thirty seven and this man did as much to further the cause of Christianity, at least in name, than almost any man in history. I mean, he, he played a, an active role in the Edict of Milan in 313, which gave Christians legal status and, and helped end the time of persecution. He called for the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, AD to unite Christians who had differing beliefs. Who is Jesus? Is he really God? Is he not God? The whole Arian controversy. And, and Constantine just says, we need to figure this out. Does the Bible say that Jesus is God or not? And of course, it landed right where we are, right? The, the Bible says Jesus is God. And finally, his deathbed conversion right, led to the widespread acceptance of Christianity. It was actually, his deathbed baptism is really what it was. He was uh, amiable to it, but really didn 't embrace it a lot, but he did a lot to really set the stage to really push Christianity legally throughout the whole whole Roman Empire. Philip Schaff again writes this regarding history that Constantine was the chief instrument for raising the church from the lowest state of oppression and persecution to the well deserved honor and power as a result of Constantine then. Christianity becomes the default religion of the Roman Empire. And this has huge implications on church membership. With the absence of persecution, it becomes easier and easier for people to become church members. In fact, there's, there's cultural pressure then to become church members because this is the dominant culture. It takes more fortitude not to be a member of the church at this point in history than to be a member of the church because you had to go against the culture of the day. Because after the days of Constantine, people born into the Roman Empire were born what? Christians. Were born members of the church. So, that's why infant baptism rose to prominence at this time. It's because those who were born were baptized because they're in the church right now. And the the church records of baptisms, actually, often became the official records of citizenship in some reason. So you say, well, are they a citizen? Let's go to the church and see when they were baptized. Because everyone was baptized Christian because it was all the, the Christian world. And Jeremy Kimball describes a slide from the rigorous membership of the post-apostolic times to the relaxed membership of the, the days of what we call the dark ages. He writes this, quote, As infant baptism became increasingly popular, less emphasis was placed on teaching adults prior to baptism. Instead, increasingly, churches sought to baptize infants and prepare those children through confirmation for full membership. As the church spread into the West, it became a common pattern to baptize and to allow someone into membership with no catechetical instruction. So there you see kind of the decay. In many cases, the only requirement for renunciation of the pagan gods was a willingness to be baptized. And as such, church membership whether initiated through infant baptism or adult confession, had lost its meaning in terms of separating the regenerate from the rest of the world. And there you see what's church membership. It's right, who's, who's in the church, who's out of the church? Can you be circumcised to be saved, Acts 15, or not? Right, who's in the church? Who's a, a part and who's a member of the church and who's not? And um, and then you see often that, right, that everyone who's born is baptized, and then you've got to have this idea about about confirmation, which confirms people, teaches people about Christianity, and then that goes by the way, and then just everybody, as Christianity is the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. People just oh, all were church members, and therefore then there 's the relaxed membership. Gone was the distinction about the genuine faith, um, who had genuinely had faith and who didn't. then the culture made it easy for nominal believers just to enter into the church. In fact, everyone was nominal believer because everyone was Christian. And Jeremy Kimball continues, he says, infant baptism was a sign tantamount to both church membership and citizenship. This made church membership not a free decision based on conversion, but rather part and parcel of merely living in a geographical locale. And and the result of this, many regions where everyone in the community was baptized infants because of cultural norms, everyone's a member of the church, just kind of come in. Um, The result is this relaxed membership that just filled the church with unbelievers. And this is the way the church was for over a thousand years. Until the days of the Reformation. Uh, When 1517, what happened in 1517? Martin Luther, what did he do? He nailed the theses on the wall, on the door at Wittenberg. And uh, thus began the Protestant Reformation. And then began what I'm calling a regenerate membership, um, which was really just a a, a a desire to go back and to reform the church, to change it from this relaxed membership where everything goes to let's now have this regenerate membership. Regenerate just means you're you're changed, you're you're made new, you're you're born again. So this would be membership in the church of only born again believers, and, and they had to work really hard because all of a sudden you got everybody in the church as Christian. And, and the Reformation really saw as they, as they looked on the solas. The, sola Scriptura, and sola gratia, and sola fide, and solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. Right? It's the Scripture alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And we see the, the, the importance of faith and believing and coming to Christ in, in that time. And really embracing the Gospel again. That you're not born into the Gospel. You, you, you believe into the Gospel. You you believe and trust in Christ. And and it's through that belief that you're changed and transformed and God makes you new and you are regenerate. And with the rediscovery of these things, those of the Reformation then really thought through church membership. And, And the responses varied. Now, some sought to redeem existing membership structures. Some sought a fresh start in what church membership was. And others sought a middle ground. Let's just look at those. Some sought to redeem. These are like the Reformed churches, the Lutherans, Reformed churches, Church of England. And they continued, really, they want to just redeem. So they continued in the ways of the Roman Catholic Church by continuing infant baptism. However, unlike the Catholics, they didn't rely upon the saving power of the baptism. That's why they elevated the importance of confirmation. Confirmation. Um, by which people can be taught the fundamentals of the faith, like catechumens of the, the first century. And upon credible confession of faith then and training, they were confirmed as believers and brought into full membership. And this practice continues today among evangelical paedobaptists, right? who aren't placing their trust in the baptism, infant baptism, um, but but are trying to then just to see that as a sign of, yes, we're a Christian family, and that's where this comes in, but it's really the faith. It's the, it's the confirmation later. That, that's, that's those who sought to redeem the practices of this relaxed church membership. And there were those who wanted a fresh start in church membership practices. These were the Anabaptists, baptized again. They rejected infant baptism, practiced believer's baptism, which that then became the initiatory rite into church membership and into the church. That brought a voluntary membership into the church of the committed. And the fruit of this was uh, starting fresh, like just saying, let's not just have this relaxed membership, like like everybody kind of come and do whatever you want. Let's let's really be part of the the committed, this community life. They practice church discipline to protect the purity of the church. That was radical at the time of the Reformation because when you had just everyone's a Christian, you can't discipline them out of the country unless you exile them, unless they do something really, really bad. Or they're a heretic of the church, right? There was, ex- there was church discipline there. But here we're just talking about just the, the community of people. And it's really the majority of Baptist churches today, coming from the line of the Anabaptists, who want to just start over with this church membership. And, and then there were those who sought the, the middle ground, um, who practiced open membership. These were the Baptists who prioritized regenerate membership over doctrinal positions. So, in other words, these are those who didn't require credo-baptism as the prerequisite church membership or communion. John Bunyan was one of those who believed in this. One uh, of the chief advocates, um, George Offer, the editor of his works, John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan said this, that, that the only inquiry as to the fitness of a candidate for church fellowship should be this, whether the regenerating powers of the Holy Spirit had baptized the Spirit of the proposed member into newness of life there was john bunyan it's regenerate membership are they genuine believers if they're genuine believers that's what requires them to enter into church membership and, and and the baptism requirement or the the mode of baptism was not elevated bunyan said that that uh baptism was a personal duty in respect which every individual need to be need to be satisfied in his own mind right was that pedo-baptist was was I, was i Baptize the child. Was that okay? Or, or should I be baptized after I, be, after I believe? Just a, a, a right and um, a religious right. And Bunyan said, said, that's not the big deal. The big deal is whether you regenerate or not. We're not going to form the dividing line based on baptism. It's called the open, BAP, open membership position. That's the position of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Accepts both paedo-baptists and credo-baptists in the memberships. Greg Strand writes, we are Baptists. This is of the EFCA. We are Baptists with a small b in that what's critical for membership in local church is true salvation. And the fact that both credo and pedo-baptism are allowed is a significance of silence issue that we will debate but not divide over. John Piper advocates for open membership as well. Just seeking seeking a, a balanced position or seeking a middle ground on how you deal with the, the repercussions of this relaxed membership and understanding regeneration. Right, Regeneration, that's the that's the key so that's been since the the reformation okay so there's survey of church history just in the the broadest of context now certainly there were exceptions you can find in each of these places um, but just just think about in the new testament rapidly coming so many people overwhelmed leadership structure comes later then during times of persecution this real rigorous time of examination and then during the thousand years after Constantine, just relax. We're like everybody was part of the church, part of Christians. The dark ages, it wasn't good. But then, since the days of the Reformation, really trying to get to regenerate a church membership. Now, in just such a big swath here that I have just even here this morning, um, didn't even talk about a lot of specifics. We just passed over that, like age-related questions. Like, how old do you need to be? Or baptismal candidates, how, how exactly do you do that? Or, or uh, what do you require of the instruction, um, catecholical instruction? Or, or what about different kinds of membership? Community membership or discipleship membership or covenant membership or renewable church membership or the halfway church covenant membership? Uh, there's lots of different things that we just don't have time to talk about today. But enough. Listen to what Nathan Finn said. He said this, and this is my point, and this is where I'm arguing that what we've done at Rock Valley Bible Church is not unbiblical and what we're doing now is biblical. It's that both what we've done in informal membership is just as biblical as formal membership. It's just as we have decided and looked through things, this would be something helpful for us as we move forward to try to define our relationship with one another. But here's what Nathan Finn said. In two millennia of Christian history, there's been considerable diversity in the prerequisites for and the practice of church membership. Excuse me. Lots of diversity in how church memberships practice. And maybe on your mind, they're like, church memberships coming to Rock Valley Bible Church, I don't want that. I'm very leery of that. In fact, some of you wrote on your, your comments, I'm very leery of church membership. Well, it may be because you have a church membership in your mind that's different than what we're gonna practice at Rock Valley Bible Church. They maybe you say, Well, we don't need church membership, right? You're thinking fine. Well, it might be because you're thinking about something different than what we're doing. And really what we're trying to do is just define what we're doing and have things be clear of who's in, who's out. Um, And as we will see, that's a huge help to leaders, to know who we want to shepherd and care, who wants to receive shepherd and care from leaders. We'll see that later, but I'm I'm getting ahead. But let's just go to my final point here this morning. I want to talk about recent membership. This is like today, in our culture today. Um, And I just say, when it comes to church membership, spectrum spanning. There are some who think church membership's totally optional, And some who thinks it's totally required. Wayne Mack summarizes common reasoning of many. He says, over my 40 years of ministry, I've had many people say to me, I'm not saved by church membership. I'm saved by grace of God through faith. And when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be there because I joined a church, but because I repented of my sins and believed on Jesus Christ. So what difference does it make whether I'm a member of a local church or not? The attitude of many, many people. There's this very individualized sort of uh, religion. Where Mark Dever, on the other hand, is totally on the other spectrum. And, and, and by the way, Wayne Mack is, is not saying that that's good, that's where he is, but he's just talking about uh, lots of people say that. Listen to what Mark Dever says, though. He says that the core of the issue is that Christians often tend to view their Christianity as a personal relationship with God and not much else. Many Christians don't realize how this most important relationship with God necessitates a number of secondary personal relationships, the relationships that Christ established between us and his body. And in fact, even Mark Dever has even said, I've heard him say, particularly for college students, he gets up and says, well, if you're not a member of a church, I'm doubtful whether you're a Christian or not. It's kind of the extent to which Mark Dever goes because he just says that's the fruit of one's salvation is to be part of right this most significant relationship requires other relationships, particularly in in the body. Well, let's just think about why some Christians think about church membership being optional. Okay, some have never even considered being a member of a church. They're ignorant about church membership. They're ignorant about what their church teaches about church membership. There was a a, uh, a research done in two thousand and twelve by the Grey Matter Research Company that. From those adults who attend a place of worship once a month or more, their conclusion was this, there is widespread confusion and ignorance on the subject of official membership in a place of worship. And, and they were asked this question, people were asked, people who come to church were, were asked whether your, um, your worship place, wherever you will, offers any kind of membership or not. And among all worship goers, Only half of the people knew that an official membership was offered at their church. Um, A third think it's not, and 20% were not sure. So that's just half of all people. And among evangelicals, professing evangelicals, 72% said, um, well, membership is offered, but 14% said it it wasn't, and another 14% were unsure I think there's a widespread ignorance about church membership, even at places where it's worship. We want to make that clear about us as we transition what church membership is. Um, But some, I think, regarding who view church membership as optional, view their religion, actually, just because of their own personal experience, they view it as optional. William Hendricks, who, who wrote a book called Exit Interviews, very insightful, people who had left the church um, and this, by the way, sometimes people are leery of church membership because they've had a bad experience with church membership, or it's been over-oppressive and, and domineering, or church has been bad for them. Uh, William Hendricks says this, more and more Christians in North America are feeling disillusioned with the church and other formal institutional expresses, expressions of Christianity. And as he, he wrote this book and dialed exit interviews, there's dozens of disillusioned Christians who'd been hurt for various reasons and he related their stories of disappointment. He said this, that these people have remarkably vibrant spiritual lives and touchingly close to friendships with a kindred spirit or two, but in the main, they tend to nurture their relationship with God apart from the traditional means of church and parachurch. He concludes by saying, in the end, what matters when it comes to the church is neither membership nor attendance, but spirituality, one's relationship with God and the implication of that relationship for day-to-day life. In other words, one's Personal relationship with God trumps everything, including membership in a local church. But like Mark Devers said, your, your vertical relationship with God has implications upon many other secondary relationships. And Howard Hendricks might say, well, it cuts that off. It's not important. No, it's very important. It's not that our personal relationship with God is, is, trumps everything. And, and that comes really because people think that their religion is just a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, how many of you know this phrase, right? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's like the de facto evangelism today, right? Come and have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's not in the Bible. Do you know that? That's the thrust of American evangelicalism, that you need, right, to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And yet Trevin Wax says, no phrase is more characteristic of evangelical lingo than this one. But, but I, I would say this, that relationship is helpful to distinguish what genuine Christianity is away from religion. Right? It's a relationship with God. It's not religion. It's not all these things that we do. It's not this, this the duty. You come to a place. You, you give God something. He gives you something, some kind of whatever, religion. But this idea of a relationship has some consequences, like this self-centered Christianity. I've got this personal Jesus. It's about, it's about me, Depeche Mode, secular band, which maybe some of you know about. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. Top seller. That's what the world thinks, right? This own personal Jesus, just, he's there for me, he cares for me. And then, without any implication about church membership, it's no surprise then that Christians are consumers. Viewing church membership on on their own terms, um, through the lens of whatever helps. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be there if that helps me. If it doesn't help me, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So, one man tells a story about his friend Nathan, who attended two churches on Sunday, one because he liked their music and because the other because he liked their preaching. His involvement in both went no deeper. At the first church, he'd slip out just before the last song wound down and drive to the other church five minutes away, and he even factored time to stop by McDonald's for an Egg McMuffin. He timed it so he'd be walking to the second just as the pastor started to preach. So just kind of this self-styled, well, I like that song over there, and but I like this preaching over here. So just going to listen to that song and go listen to that preaching. But as this man's friend, Nathan, was was not committed to anything. He just went to hear this show. That's not church membership, just seeing a show. Um so there are those who think it's optional. There are even some who would advocate against church membership. Wade Burleson wrote a book called Fraudulent Authority in which, which he just said, no, don't ever become a membership of the church because what you're doing is you're handing over the authority of Jesus Christ to mere men. Totally against it. Totally against membership of any kind. Well, on the other side, there are those who view church membership as necessary. And uh, Mark Devers, I quoted before, sees membership in the local church intended to be a testimony to our membership in the universal church. It says church membership does not save us, but it's a reflection of our salvation. Right? In this way, right? I think church membership can be viewed as a fruit of salvation, where God gives a believer a desire to unite with another visible assembly of other believers. In fact, that's that's where Jonathan Lehman wrote a great book entitled Church Membership, it's really small. And he said that there are people who say that they, the church membership is not explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Therefore, I don't believe in church membership. And he says, what, You're looking for the wrong thing, is what he said. Membership's not a club word, right? Membership in the church is not like a club. Okay? It's not like you, you, you pay your dues and you get your dues back, or it's kind of like here's the agreement. Right? You, 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 pay. you put money in the offering box, and then we perform religious duties for you. We're going to help you. Right? You've done your thing. I'm going to do my thing. We're just this club. We're not a club. It's not what church is about. But Lehman, he likens church membership to an embassy, a place where one nation has presence inside another nation. He says this, when you open your Bible, stop looking for signs of club with voluntary members. Instead, look for a Lord with a bound together people that's got this nation with inside this bigger nation. And Lehman and Dever argue that church membership is necessary as a result of that. And, and I, just, I just say this, that church history has demonstrated uh, an array of church membership practices. People today are divided the importance of, of church membership. And even today, churches are across the spectrum when they practice church membership. Some, like Rock Valley Bible Church, have no membership, official membership process. We simply affirm all regular attenders are members. Are you part of us? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious. Many of you are part of us. Many of you are members. Maybe not an official member, but an informal member for sure. And one church, I think, says it well, accurately, what we have practiced. It says, um, we consider all who attend our church to be members. There are no tests to take or forms to sign. The reason for this is that our elders feel a responsibility for all who involve themselves with our church. Since our church is elder ruled, the congregation does not vote, and therefore the stability of the church is not threatened by this approach. That's really where where we are as a church as well. It's just kind of if you're coming, you're involved, you've been part of the church. Um, and so that that's how some people view it. Other churches will, in terms of their practice of church membership, I uh, I read a lot of Baptist churches have altar calls at the end. Anyone who comes forward to the end of the service professes faith in Christ and express a desire to join the church is instantly a member. That's it, right? Like the New Testament, right? Just eight people instantly becoming members of the church. People, churches practice that today. But most churches, right, um, it, it embrace members after some sort of uh, membership class or some other assignment. Some some places have only just a one class for one hour. That's all you have. Some are several classes, four classes, eight classes, Sixteen, I'm not sure why they're multiples of of two, but they often are, right? Powers of two, they they tend to be. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why. But after um, these classes, then you have some sort of membership covenant. And these covenants vary greatly. In fact, one church simply says this, quote, When you become a member, you are agreeing to support this ministry with your finances, time, gifts, and talents. You're also agreeing to live a lifestyle that reflects a growing relationship with Jesus and allow yourself to be held accountable to the spiritual oversight of the elders. It's like everything. That's what it means. That's your covenant right there. That's what you're promising to basically to to give and serve and really to submit yourself to the church and live a life that reflects Jesus. Uh, On the other hand, I I saw this church that had a church covenant that's three pages long, three pages, single spaced, all about everything that you're going to sign up for if you become a member of that church. Like how many meetings you're going to attend, your morality standards, external, like like whether well, there's drinking or, or drugs or movies or all these kind of things, your, your financial support, and how much you're going to support the church, uh, you're maintaining peace in the body, support and submission to the leadership, commitments of your personal devotion to God, right? How's your family life going to be? You're going to read your Bible every day. You're going to evangelize your Christian liberty, separation from the world, all this sort of stuff in three pages. Oh, my goodness. It's church membership. And maybe that's what you're thinking of church membership. We're not going to have a three-page document of all that you need to agree to to become a member of Rock Valley Bible Church. It's not, it's not what we're going to do. Here's my point, though. There's no historical agreement on, on why and how to practice church membership, which means really we at Rock Valley Bible Church have great liberty to see and understand how it is that we want to practice our, our church membership. And um, my heart has always been to submit... To our church, what the Bible says, and uh, so next week, right, my, my message this week was entitled Church Membership in History. We're going to look at church membership in the Bible and just what that means. I think it's been practiced among us well, um, but informally, we're going to put some definition to that. So you just think, even think about that. If you want to just think about next week, well, where is church membership in the Bible? And it might surprise you in some of the places where it is and how it works itself out. So let, let's pray. Father, I just would pray that you would use this maybe lecture more than a, a sermon, not a lot of scripture, but really given perspective in this whole issue of how it is that others have approached church membership, and God, I pray that you would help us to, to agree on a, a balance of our culture here and what it means, God, of how to, um, how to formalize what we have done informally. Uh, god how really to recognize people as we're we're in and we want to be a part here we want to serve here and uh, we want to be cared for we want to care for others and we want to submit to this church we want to love the people in this church we want to seek the unity of this church god so i I pray that you'd help us to be unified in this process of how to how to formally walk forward in the church membership process so guide us god i I know that i confess even in my own heart anytime we've a A change in church of any type, people get nervous and and, um, their problems often come. I just pray, God, you would allow this process to to go well and that we would in humility um, grasp and understand what you've done at Rock Valley Bible Church and how we're seeking to lead for the future. We thank you for Christ. May we never lose sight of how he is our hope. His death, burial, and resurrection, God, is is our only hope in this life. And we trust in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.